Well, New City Church, happy one year. Yeah, let's praise God. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're with us online or here for the first time, know that we're glad you're here with us today. You know, as we celebrate the life of our church today, uh, one year, I can't help but think of the first year of life for each one of my kids. You know, they were a whirlwind, um, full of sleepless nights, trying to figure out what you're doing, uh, continually adjusting. Uh, the baby has to learn to eat and sleep and crawl. There's constant diaper changes and spit-ups and messes. Uh, but in all the messiness and chaos, you know, there's something so incredibly sweet about that first year of life. Uh, there's a special connection that's made with mom and dad. Uh, you never, I'll never forget sitting with uh, each of my kids exhausted, right? Just holding them uh, and rocking them as they sleep, looking at each of them, um, knowing that they have turned uh, our world, my world, upside down, but knowing what an incredible, precious gift that each one of them are. Uh, being in awe that God would entrust uh, their soul to a faulty man like myself, knowing that God made each, made each one of my kids uniquely for a purpose, uh, watching each one of them in that first year go from a helpless infant drinking milk alone, crying out of hunger or tiredness, to crawling, uh, sleeping through the night, eating solid foods, laughing, giggling, uh, and growing more expressive and just kind of learning to somewhat communicate with kind of baby bab uh, babble, um, whatever they wanted. You know, there's something so special about that first year that teaches you a lot as a human, as a parent, learning to grow in patience, uh, learning your limits as a human, learning the importance of rest and boundaries and constant communication, being forced to grow in humility and self-sacrifice, needing to constantly consider someone else's need above your own. So, so much incredible growth happens in that first year for both the child and the parents. But I also remember being so thankful to get into that second year uh, because in that second year, they sleep better, uh, their personality starts to show more, they learn to communicate and talk a little bit better uh, while also knowing there's going to be all new struggles in that second year. And so here we are as a church looking back on all of what God has done over this first year, a crazy chaotic uh, year that will go down in the history books, a, a year full of messy diapers and sleepless nights, but yet so sweet and so shaping and so humbling that will mark us as a church and me as a pastor for years to come. You know, we've been reminded that, uh, that the church is not bounded by walls, uh, that we're a church gathered and we're a church scattered. You know, we've, we've, we've seen our first baptism as a church. We've seen the Lord faithfully provide financially for us for long-term sustainability and growth. You know, we've seen new people jump in and join us. Uh, we've seen a lot of depth in relationship and discipleship begin to be established. You know, last year uh, as a church, while we were in quarantine, during a global pandemic, uh, while all of our trips were canceled, we prayed consistently all year long for five villages in South Asia. And four out of those five villages now have brand new believers, right? Yeah, praise God. I know we've said this all year long, right? You cannot quarantine the, the Great Commission. A global pandemic cannot stop God's global purposes to draw people to himself. And we've been able to add two new global missions partners in Central Asia and the Dominican Republic, where we hope to see uh, to send teams over the next several months and years. And I'm excited to announce that because of your generous support all year long, as well as with our 2021 missions and church planning offering that we took back in December, we're able to send $10,000 right outside of our church to support global church planning. 
Yeah, praise God. Like this is, this is huge uh, for a church plant that is now a year old, right? Uh, this is God's favor on our church. I don't want you to miss that. And then, and then locally earlier this year, while in quarantine, we were able to quickly raise $1,500 for several families to help provide food and groceries to support families and communities in need. You know, I know many of you have had the opportunity to share with your neighbors to build stronger relationships and get better connected in your community. You know, these are some of the tangible things that we've seen, but what I don't want us to miss, uh, but, but I don't want us to miss how we've grown deeper as a church, how we've each personally been shaped, shaped over this past year. You know, we've all been uh, painfully reminded of our need for community. We've needed to continually and regularly show grace to one another and love and care and to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens and be the church for each other. You know, when people in our church have struggled or gone through hardship or transition, just writing notes of encouragement, right? Providing meals and, re and resources, laying hands on one another and praying for each other, sharing our struggles. I mean, we could go on and on and on about just so many of the just little simple things that go a long way. And I, and I can't help but be so thankful that God has tangibly shown us that we are a community of people that so desperately need each other. The bonds in relationships that we've formed with one another over the past year, uh, they will be incredibly special. Right? Going through trial and trouble as a church, making it through difficulty together and seeing God restore hardship has the ability to form sweet bonds of trust. Right? I mean, this is, and so what an incredible privilege we've had over this past year to grow deeper as a church. And if you're here for the first time, or maybe you're watching us on, uh, watching us on, or you've been coming around New City Church for a while, I want you to know something about our church. We're not perfect. In fact, we're far from perfect. But what we are as a church is a church that is anchored in the unchanging truth of God and his word that places the gospel of Jesus Christ as utmost importance and in turn helps us to walk into messy circumstances with much patience and grace. And so if you've walked in today, right, and your life is a big old mess, let me assure you that you're in the right place because uh, we can't promise to fix your, uh, your problems, we can't, uh, but we can certainly stand by you and we can encourage you in them and point you to the one who is able to sustain you through them. And so over the past few weeks, we've, uh, we've walked through the Psalms of Lament. We've seen David wrestle with hardship. We've spent time in the wilderness while he's fleeing from his enemies and under attack. But yet in the wilderness, in his trials and hardship, David worshiped the Lord. He worshiped God in the wilderness. And so if you've been in a hard season, rest assured, God desires to meet you in those seasons. And it's often not without tears. But what we know, as our series title suggests, uh, yes, God meets us in our wilderness and deserts and hardships, and he gives us rest. But let me be very clear. God does not desire to keep us there. And as we'll see so clearly today, uh, our God is a God who restores. God delights in taking the wounded and the wandering and the weary to give them rest and respite and to see them flourish and run with delight into God's mission. And so again, if your life feels like a big old mess, we're so glad you're here because I want to assure you, God does not want to keep you there. God has a plan and a purpose for your life and he wants to, you to run with the light to that end. So I hope today that we can all catch a vision of where we're running as a church. And so I wanna call us today to walk in audacious faith, whether your life is a mess, whether you're just stuck in the mundane, or whether you feel like you're on a mountaintop in your life right now. 
No matter where you are, I want to call, to call each of us today to believe in the astonishing, mighty hand of God to bring about an abundant harvest. I want to be very blunt with you right now, okay? The day that I stop believing in faith to be able to, for God to be able to do a mighty work and to see a movement of God to be shot out all over the world is the day that I need to stop being your pastor. And let me assure you, today is not that day. Because I'm praying for nothing short of the next great awakening. I truly believe that it's coming, and I so desperately want our church to be a part of what God will do. Listen, I would rather, I would rather sound like a crazy fool believing in faith for the next great awakening than sit back on my heels and concede in fear, seeing the schemes of the enemy try to ravish the church. Y'all, our enemy has been having a heyday on the American church over this past year, all over the country. It's like a broken record. Putting people in isolation, instilling apathy and resentment and bitterness and fear, causing division and and disunity. We have a very distinct choice to make today as God's people, as a church. We either flee and retreat or we fight in faith. And today and into 2021, I'm choosing and calling us to put our stake down, to outwardly reject the schemes of the enemy and to give everything we've got to fight in faith and to look at our enemy and just straight give him a good old punch in the nose. Believing that what we see in Psalm 65 can come about. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a few amens today, okay? I really am, because I'm not playing around. All right, when the schemes of the enemy, when they strike hard, I can't help but wonder, what in the world is he trying to stop? And so, that I, and so that to, to that I say, New City Church, happy birthday, right? Uh, we may have boxing gloves on the way out as party favors, um, and so just be encouraged, all right? And so today, as we look at Psalm 65 and over the next two weeks in Psalm 66 and Psalm 67, I want us, I want to call us to put our stake in the ground, believing in faith that God will do nothing short of a mighty and a powerful work that can start here in Tampa and reverberate around the world. You know, our vision statement as a church, it remains the exact exact same. It has not changed. We exist to see Jesus change lives and we exist to reach the world. Today and today in Psalm 65, I want to walk through this passage and use it almost as a prayer guide, uh, as a guide to fuel our faith, because this psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving, where there is expectation of a fruitful, far, of a fruitful harvest. And so follow along with me as we read Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed, and you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in the courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who uh, by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain and so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, setting its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. 
Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So before we dive into our text today, I want to address this theme of the harvest that we see in this passage. You know, specifically towards the end of the text, you know, there's this language of an agricultural harvest. Um, you know, it's a common theme that Jesus often re- referred to in the New Testament when he referred to a mass of people. You know, a lot of ministry work and evangelism is often compared to a harvest. Uh, the idea of just tilling the soil and sowing the seeds and reaping the harvest. You know, in our psalm, we see a physical harvest. But I, want you to be, but I want you to be aware, a lot of what we will be talking about today is a spiritual harvest. You know, I've always, I've really always resonated with harvest language because when I was a kid, you know, I would, uh, I would work with my dad in our garden at our house. Uh, he turned our sandbox into a garden, uh, which looking back on it at the time, I, I wasn't really happy about it. Uh, but now just knowing the mess of a, of a sandbox and the benefits of a garden, I would do the exact same thing. I just would. Um, and I told you last week, I had a nickname in college called Heavy Foot Hovis. And one of my other uh, nicknames I was given in college was Farmer Eric. <laughs> because I had potted tomato plants and cucumber plants over every square inch of our deck that we had at our townhouse. Uh, and back in North Carolina, it was like clockwork. You know, every year on my birthday in April, I would go out and buy these tiny little plants that come, they come in these packs. It was like eight little tomato plants. It's like five or six bucks or something like that. And I would, I would, I would plant all of them. And at the same time, like clockwork, around July 4th, we were just swimming in tomatoes. Uh, And I would eat a tomato sandwich almost every day for about a month. It was great, right? There's just nothing better than a good old tomato sandwich that comes out of your garden. Just a little mayonnaise, right? A little tidge of salt and pepper. Um, If you're feeling fancy, you might put some bacon on that thing and throw some lettuce. And you've got a good old BLT right there. So there's, there's something very satisfying about eating out of your own garden. Uh, one, homegrown tomatoes, they just taste better, right, than, than the store-bought tomatoes. Uh, but two, watching those plants grow, seeing the flowers bud, the tomatoes start to, to take form, and then doing everything in your power to make sure those evil varmints, right, they don't get to them before you pick them uh, and get to eat them. Uh, and by the, by the time you get to that tomato sandwich, it's incredibly satisfying. You know, I've just always enjoyed the fruit that comes from my own harvest. Uh, And this is what we see in our psalm, except obviously it's way bigger. There was an abundant harvest coming out of a drought that that resulted in excitement and thanksgiving. And so in the typical New City Church fashion, uh, we have one driving direction today, and that one direction for us is more of a plea. And here's our main idea. In one direction, New City Church, expect God to bring an abundant harvest of salvation. May we expect and plead with God for nothing short of the next great awakening. May we be a church that expects God to move, that expects God to bring an abundant harvest. You know, listen, our God is worthy of audacious faith that looks at the schemes of the enemy and says, you can try to deceive me, but you can't touch me because I am hidden in Christ. And because of the power of the God of the universe, it's on my side. And so as we see in Psalm 65, we serve a mighty God that delights to bring springs of rushing waters, that longs to bring abundant harvest out of dry and weary deserts. Why? Because we serve a God who restores. And so as we go back through this psalm, you'll see there's a lot of different things going on here. 
But just to keep it simple for us today, we're going to see three things about God in this psalm. Number one, uh, God's grace. Number two, God's power. And number three, God's bounty. And something else that we'll talk about today uh, in all of this that I don't apologize for is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, everything we do here is at New City Church is affected by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Right, if the truth of God's word is not true, then we of all people, we, we should be laughed at. If Jesus did not live, die, and be raised from the dead, then we have no hope. And none of us should be here today, meeting and gathering. We do not gather for moralism. We don't gather just to be better people, although that is a byproduct. No, we gather to worship Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus Christ is not mentioned in anything I say as I stand up here, then it's not a Christian message. It's nothing better than do-good moralism that has no power. So even as we read a passage of scripture where Jesus is not named, let me assure you, Jesus is still the hero. He's still the main character of our passage. And we'll see this more in our first point in just a second. But before we get there, I want to first walk through these first few verses and explain a few things as we go. Look back at verse 1. It says, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. A few things to point out here. You know, David is addressing God and telling him he's worthy of praise and worship, that God has earned the right to be worshipped. Um, in fact, uh, the full meaning of the translation when it says praise is due to you, it means uh, God is, uh, is so good for his people that he deserves constant and new worship and new prayers. And, and just as an interesting note here, he says, O oh God, in Zion... Uh, and Zion was the name of the city that David captured, which became the site of the tabernacle and later the temple. And in this first verse, to rephrase it, in short, he's saying, God, you are worthy of our worship. David is highlighting a renewal of devotion, celebrating a renewal of God's mercy and forgiveness at the temple. There's a sense of praising God and asking for a renewal of God's favor. And he goes into verse 2. He says, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. So David is acknowledging that God hears their prayers. And that all flesh shall come to him. When he says all flesh, we could say all humanity or all peoples shall come to him. In essence, he knows that all of humanity will come in some way. Uh, that every person on the earth will face God. It will, and it will either be a time of rejoicing or it will be a time of tragic rejection. And so hang tight with me here. I'm going to explain that more in a second. Uh, but then David continues and speaks of his sin, his iniquities and his wrongdoings. He says in verse 3, you atone for our transgressions. And if you're not familiar with Bible language, atoning for transgressions means when you sin, when you do something wrong, uh, there's a consequence for that wrong. Sin deserves a penalty. And the consequence that the Bible speaks of is death. The penalty of sin, first for sin is death. And the reason the penalty of our sin deserves death is because God is infinitely holy and perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. And in order for, for God to be in the presence of sin, it, sin must be put to death. He cannot be, in put, he cannot be put in, in the presence of sin and it must be put to death. And so death completely eradicates sin. God can't, because of his supreme holiness, just look past sin or just know that it's hidden in a closet somewhere. No, sin needs to be completely put to death, eradicated and gone forever. And just to bring this down to, to everyday life, 
This is, what, this is what this means. When you lie or when you steal or when you cheat, uh, when you gossip, when you have hate in your heart, we could go on and on and on. But every one of these sins, in order to be accepted by God, must be completely eradicated and put to death. They need to go away completely. Because remember, all flesh will come to God. Every person will face God who is perfectly holy. And every person will either present their sin where God must tragically reject them because God, remember, God can't be in the presence of sin or every person will come to God with their sin put to death and gone so that they can worship God and be led to rejoice. And in the Old Testament, during David's time, the guy who wrote this psalm, uh, in order to pay for this penalty, God allowed for that death to be on an innocent animal that did not sin, like a lamb or a goat or a bull. It was a sinless sacrifice that would be substituted in for the penalty of the person who committed the sin. And so God allowed for an innocent, sinless animal to be sacrificed so a guilty, sinful human could be forgiven. And in verse 3 of Psalm 65, David knew this dilemma and said when his sins win and defeat him, when, his, when these sins take over his life, causing him to be guilty before God, David recognizes that when a sacrifice is made, the penalty of his sin is paid for and he's completely forgiven. And for David, being able to pay for his sins that were defeating him and weighing him down through sacrificing an animal was an incredible grace for him. It was worth rejoicing over. He was once guilty and stained by his sin, and because of this sacrifice, now he's, now he's not. He's completely innocent, and he's able to rejoice. Which is what we see in verse 4. Look what he says. After he receives the grace of God for his sins being forgiven, he says, uh, verse 4, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So David recognizes the great blessing of having his sins paid for that were defeating him and deserved the penalty of death. This was for David a great blessing and a picture of, number one, God's grace. It was worthy of rejoicing over because David went from being weighed down, defeated, guilty, and convicted of his own sin that made him an enemy of God, causing him to be unclean and dirty because of it, to then, by God's grace, providing a sacrifice, as we see in verse 4. He was brought near to dwell with God. He was brought near to God to be with him, to know him, to be in his courts, his house, to be in the, the intimacy of his home, and not just in God's house, but we also says in verse 4, he shall be satisfied in it. And so get this. David went from deserving a severe penalty of death to dwelling and being satisfied in God's house, to staying uh, and being with God. He went, he went from completely guilty, uh, to a completely guilty, sinful rebel to marvelously loved, cherished, and forgiven. This was not something David deserved, uh, and he knew it. David recognized God's grace, and it led him to praise. This was remarkable grace for David. And we, what we can't miss is that we too, just like David, need our sins to be forgiven. All of us here today. We need God's grace. We, just like all those in the Old Testament who needed their sins to be forgiven by putting their sin to death through a sacrifice, we too need our sins to be also be put to death through an innocent, sinless sacrifice. 
New City Church, this is the reason we talk about Jesus every single week because Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. He is our once and for all sacrifice. Instead of offering bulls and lambs and goats and sheep needing to be continually sacrificed, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, went to the cross to die a bloody death to pay for the penalty of our sin. Jesus atoned for our sin. And because Jesus Christ being sacrificed and dying on the cross and then being raised from the dead, not staying dead, but defeating death, he was able to pay for the sins of the whole world, for all of humanity which includes you and me. And as we talk about this, I can't help but think of the weight and the emotion of the process that David went through by going to the market to purchase a lamb under the weight and under the conviction of his sin, being so burdened, wanting to be clean, and taking that innocent animal and sacrificing it for his sins to be forgiven. Just think about the weight behind it that it took to get to that point. But listen, because of Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, our sinless sacrifice, we don't have to clean ourselves up to come to God. We don't have to do any ritual sacrifices. We don't have to put on any special clothes or burn any special incense or do any special chants or any special hand motions. No, the only thing we must do is believe in Jesus Christ in faith and we're forgiven completely. And just like, just like David said in verse four, we're blessed by God. We're chosen by God, brought near to God to dwell with him, to live with him, and to be satisfied by God. What incredible good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's remarkable grace that is given to us. This seems too good to be true. You know, we were talking with our neighbors this past week. And we were, they were sharing with us all the rituals uh, they believe they must do to be in the presence of God. Uh, and it was such a joy to be able to just share the good news with them, share Jesus with them, uh, and, and praying. And that if they believe in Jesus, that they're completely forgiven, they're completely accepted by God, and eternally secure. You know, we're still praying that they would believe in faith to receive Jesus, to trust in him, to believe in the sufficiency of Jesus alone. And listen, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I want to plead with you. Trust him today. Trust in Jesus Christ. The sins that are weighing you down and keeping you from God can be forgiven and paid for in full by Jesus Christ. It only takes faith. It's that easy. And then for our church, you know, for one of my many prayers for us this year is that we would be a gospel people. That we would proclaim this excellent news to as many people as possible. There are so many people around us that are desperately searching for this truth. I pray that we would establish relationships with people to be able to lovingly and boldly proclaim this excellent truth. And that we would not just proclaim the gospel, but that we would also believe and display the full benefits of the gospel. Yes, the gospel saves us. We get eternal life with God's favor uh, forever, but it's not like a 401k where we reap the benefits later. After this life, no, we get, we get the benefits now. Like we get God right now. David longed to be in the presence of God, to see God's faith and feel his warmth and to marvel at his holiness, to be in the awe of, greatness and, of his greatness and power and to be satisfied by God. And he had to sacrifice bulls and goats continually to do that. But those who profess Christ get that right now all the time without hindrance. You know, I can tell you from personal experience that when life gets crazy, God is able to come in and provide an abundance of peace. 
When it seems as if we should be anxious or fearful, God can come in and fill our hearts with faith and boldness and eager expectation. If we are a gospel people that have experienced much grace, if we have experienced this unmerited grace that have been brought, we have been brought near to God. Right? When school gets stressful, we can still rejoice and find peace. Right? When relationships get strained, we can extend forgiveness and grace. When we're not sure of our future, we can trust that although we may not know, we can trust that the God who created the world and made us for a purpose, he knows, and it's in his hands. We could go on and on of the incredible benefits of the gospel, the daily reoccurring benefits of Jesus. But may we not forget the best one of all. Just like David showed us in verse 4, we get God. We get God. We're put in his house. We're brought near to dwell with him, to know him, to be in his courts, his house, to be in the intimacy of his home. This is an all-the-time reality for us. God has made our hearts his home, and may we be a people who regularly remember we're in the presence of God. Just let that sit. right? Just let that sit right now. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you're in his presence. You're in the presence of a holy God. He's holding you, sustaining you, uh, and preparing a place for us. If we believe in Jesus, we're secure right now, today. The schemes of the enemy can try to slow us down, discourage us, and try to divide us. But let me tell you something. If we are a gospel people, the schemes of the enemy, they cannot defeat us. Because brothers and sisters, we know the end of the story. Jesus wins and God reigns. And his people, those who believe in Jesus, are kept secure forever. New City Church, how emboldening is this for us? Like, we win. It's guaranteed. And we have this sort of guarantee that no matter the difficulty, no matter the distractions, and no matter the enemy's schemes, we do not retreat in fear. We can stand up and we can punch the enemy in the nose, run and sprint and strain towards the finish line with everything we've got. We can run and sprint in great faith, expecting God to move in power for an abundant harvest. If we truly believe that we have God on our side, that as the Great Commission tells us that all the authority of heaven and on earth is with us, why in the world would we expect anything short of anything of, an, of, a, of, a, of another great awakening? We have the greatest news on the planet with the power of heaven and earth on our side and with us. New City Church, man, we be an expectant people because we have a God of great power on our side. Leading us to our second point, number two, God's power. You know, my son, he turns two in a couple days. I mean, six. <laughs> six in a couple days. Excuse me there. Good old laugh. Uh, one of the things that has been so fun for me is to see his childlike faith just kind of enthralled uh, and all over God's power. You know, four, five, and six-year-old boys. I mean, uh, anything that has any sort of superpowers, they just eat it up, right? They, we, we try to capitalize on it. I mean, he, he's asking a ton of questions about God. Um, you know, how, how God made things and, 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 and who made what, like, could Jesus do this or could Jesus do that? Um, but one of the things that we say all the time, I say all the time to our kids is that Jesus just always wins, right? It's like Christian cheat codes, just trying to instill a sense of confidence that can come in facing opposition when God's power is on our side. And so we were playing rock, paper, scissors uh, with them and I was just completely destroying them. And then they break out the cross. Uh, and of course they win. Like, what do you do with that? You know? And then I draw out a sign for God and uh, the Holy Spirit. And it just really threw them for a loop. This is like theology for real life. 
And last week, my son Stockton, you know, he's been debating one of his friends at school over who would win and who's better, right? Jesus versus Santa. Um, I mean, this is like kindergarten apologetics at its finest. Um, this has been a great equipping opportunity for us and our family. I mean, we were just talking about the reality of the resurrection with kindergartners, and it was uh, all sorts of things. But, you know, I've given him some real zingers to take back to school. Um, it's been a lot of fun. But what I want to get across in saying this is that understanding God's power that is with us and at our disposal should greatly encourage us and should greatly embolden us. Because as we know, Jesus wins. And if we believe in him and he's on our side, we're on the winning team. So look at what David says about God's greatness and power as displayed specifically through his creation. Look at verse 5, starting in verse 5. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of his peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your sons. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So David points out God's power, showing that he established the mountains with his might. He stills the roaring seas and the tumult of his people. Another translation says, the turmoil of the nations. I mean, how good is that, right? God has the power to bring stillness and peace to nations and peoples. There's no president or king or ruler or politician or king that can do anything like, like God can. But God can do this because he's powerful. But why does, but why does God display his power? Look back at verse 8. Right? David says, So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. God displays his power to the world so that all the ends of the earth, so that the entire world will be in awe and worship God. If God displays his power so that the entire world will know him, this should spur us on to take the greatest display of power across the street and also to the ends of the earth. And God's greatest display of power is the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes dead hearts live. When we say the name of Jesus and we tell of his wonderful works displayed at the cross that provides forgiveness, where there is power that is released. And because of this, we should be, an expectant, we should be expectant every time we proclaim the name of Jesus. Like, it's not up to our own tactics and strategy. No, it's the power of God that saves God makes dead hearts live. Our job is to proclaim the message that is infused with power. May we be a people in a church that takes the power of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And believe me, we will. We will do whatever it takes to get the gospel to those who have never heard. Uh, but we'll see more of that in two weeks, okay? Let's keep looking here, moving here. Look at verse 9. And see, and see what David says, God does, uh, that brings in a great harvest. He says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Leading us to our last point, number three, God's bounty. Just notice the language of abundance and bounty here. 
in these verses according to how he sustains his physical creation. He says, you know, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. Your water, you water is furrows abundantly. You crown the year with your bounty. You wag, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The meadows are clothed with flocks. The valleys are decked with grain. Like this is a really good harvest. Like this is a really good year. And because of this great harvest, they shout and sing for joy. And then notice what God, who God, who David gives the credit to for the bounty. Speaking to God, David says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. You provide their grain. You have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly. You crown the year with your bounty. So we, we see an abundant harvest, but David knows it must come from God. We see here God's power to sustain his creation through rain and providing grain and flocks and full rivers. And so just like we see God's bounty and ability to bring a physical harvest and seeing God's ability to sustain his creation in his physical world, how much more can we trust God to bring a harvest in his spiritual world that will last forever? New City Church, I want to be loud and clear today that God delights in bringing about an abundant harvest of worshipers that will give him glory. If we want to see Jesus change lives and reach the world, as our vision statement suggests, we, know, we must know it must come from God. If we want to see people cross from death to life and find salvation in Jesus Christ, we must know it must come from God. We know, as we've seen outlined in this psalm, as we connect the harvest to salvation, that it is God who gives the grace to save, it's God who has the mighty power to save, and we know it is God who brings the abundant harvest of salvation. And so may we be a people in 2021 that cry out to God, praying for salvation, praying and laboring and sowing seeds for an abundant harvest, while praying for God to bring the rain for the harvest. Because if God does not bring the rain, like we see in Psalm 65, there will not be a harvest and there will be no bounty. Oh, this is just the way God works. There's seasons of dry wildernesses in the desert where God grows us and teaches us and sanctifies us and deepens us. And there are also seasons of incredible bounty with an abundant harvest of salvation where God sees it fit to widen us. There are seasons of growing deeper and seasons of growing wider. And in both seasons, God is good and faithful. And in both seasons, as I said two weeks ago, God is faithful to bring water to the thirsty. He's faithful to bring water through slow tears in the wilderness of life. But what I also know so confidently, as we see in Psalm 65, is that God is able to bring a mighty rushing river into deserts to bring an abundant harvest of salvation. We don't, we don't know when or how or how long, but I'm committed to begging God continually for an abundant harvest where the wagon tracks will be filled with abundance and where the pastures are overflowing. And I want to assure you that I do not say this because I want us to be a really big church. Not at all. I, I, I say this because of verse eight. I say this so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth will be in all of God. I'm praying in faith for nothing short of the next great awakening. It may happen through us. It may happen through others. But regardless of how, when, and through whom it happens, our faith to believe it to happen is an act of worship. It pleases the Lord. It shows that we're in all of his grace. It shows that we believe in his power and it shows that we trust in his provision of a bounty. And so that said, I find it fitting to close with a verse 
uh, that God reminded me of several years ago as part of our call to plant New City Church. And it's Luke 10 too. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into harvest, into his harvest. So what is so, so emboldening about this verse in relation to Psalm 65 is that in a sense, it shows us that God is already working the spiritual harvest like we see in Psalm 65. That God will redeem people, that God will provide rain. And hear this, the problem is not the rain because God's gonna, God will bring the rain, but you know what the problem is? He needs laborers to go into the harvest to reap the bounty of salvation. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. There are people all over the world who are searching for Jesus, who need Jesus, who will believe in faith to trust in Jesus. But the problem is the laborers are few. There aren't enough laborers to go and tell them and gather God's bountiful harvest. And so New City Church, let's not miss this. We are the laborers. This is one of the reasons why we exist as a church. We have a life-changing message of grace to share with the world. We have the privilege of seeing people who, like David, are defeated by sin, but yet we have the privilege to point them to see God's remarkable grace that is found in Jesus Christ that can lead them to finding complete satisfaction with God. These are people all around us that are, there are people all around us that are wounded, wandering, and weary that need to come to the infirmary of God's grace to find healing, purpose, and joy. The question we must ask is, will we be faithful to share? Will we be crippled by fear or will we walk in faith expecting God to save? So let me ask, who are three to five people you're constantly and consistently praying for, for them to trust in Jesus? Will you be faithful to invest your life with them? Will you be uh, bold to share Jesus with them? If you don't have three, maybe just start with one. May we be a people who believe in faith and expect God to bring an abundant harvest of salvation. Let's pray. God, we trust you. Uh, in all your ways, uh, we trust you. Father, we know that you delight in seeing more worshipers come and worship you. And Father, we want, that's what we want to see, God. We want to see an abundant harvest of salvation, an abundant harvest of worshipers to come in and proclaim the name of Jesus, to see lives changed. Father, would you do a mighty work? Would you spur us on to love and good deeds and to proclaim the message of the gospel? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.